This is Sci-Fi Talk, the podcast on how sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and comics help us explore our humanity. And this is Time Capsule, episode 393. Dave Solomon is a director of Billy and Brenda and the Pothos Plant. Here is part of our interview. Before we get into it, what's that like to, to be selected? It's a short, but boy, you pack a lot into it. But what's it like to, uh, to be selected? It's thrilling. It was so wonderful um, because I wasn't sure how this short would be received. Actually, I, I shouldn't say I was pretty conf- confident in it because I knew I had good actors. I'd written it for them. And uh, even in just testing it with some small audiences, I thought, you know, it, it was appealing and, and was working. Um, but it's always stressful. I've had a few short films that have done the film festival circuit and you just never know. And I never had something at Tribeca. And so to get, I actually got a phone call from them asking if, you know, we would be a world premiere and what our status was, you know, feeling out if we'd been accepted at any other big ones or if we could world premiere there. So it was just, I mean, an incredible call. It changed my day. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it was yeah. Wonderful. And then to share that with the rest of the team, it was hard keeping it a secret for a while because we knew that. And then, of course, you can't tell anyone for a while. So but it was it's thrilling. It's, ex- it's so exciting. Well, the plot, how did this all, all come together? How did the I- idea kind of, uh, you know, hit you when you were writing this? And I know. And for any people who probably are listening, I have no idea what it is. It's it is crazy. <laughs> well, 15 minute short called Brenda and Billy and the Pothos Plant. And I actually, Santino and Sarah, who are the two main actors, we all did uh, the musical Tootsie together as the associate director of the show on Broadway and then subsequently directed the tour. But Santino, who won a Tony for the show, and yeah. Sarah nominated. Um, we all knew each other from that. I actually, Santino, Santino and I go back years. We've worked together a bunch and are friends. And uh, it was coming out of pandemic times where we were all, you know, work was still tricky in mm-hmm. theater. And- Elm worlds and um and we're mostly you know working steadily in theater and it was tough and uh but they're both done a lot of film and tv as as have i and we were uh and centino was actually right said write something for sarah and i um because he'd no, seen my writing and seen my film stuff and i had a play uh, that was workshopped well and um so he suggested it and then we all ch- chatted and and um and basically what happened, I just started thinking of the two of them and I had this image pop into my head of the two of them sitting on a park bench and Sarah holding a dying plant. And it kind of came, Sarah's very naturey and her dressing room at Tootsie was covered with like plants and things. So I just had this image of that. And then Santino sent me a list of against type roles, like things he, characters he wanted to play that he had never played. And one of them was a magician. And honestly, I go, I tend to think I go running by, um, the water and I live in Brooklyn and Williamsburg and I go for my morning runs and I tend to think about things. And I had that image in my head and he told me magician and I can't tell you where the rest happened. It was kind of a, that pandemic time loop. It was coming off the Omicron time in that period where we were all feeling crazy and in our homes yeah. again. And, and that tension and I've been staying with my mom a lot, who I would never just say <laughs> no feelings towards my mom the way that that character does in this film. But it was those, it just kind of took those pandemic stresses and the things we were feeling to that kind of absurd comedy horror world that I think is fun in a way of like it lets you in a fantasy way, like let out some of that, that energy that we're all kind of feeling in a, in a fun and fantastical and absurd way. Yeah, I love love the dark humor in this. It is, uh, you know, it's always one of my favorite things, is uh, how dark humor is used in 
in movies and uh, and certainly uh, it was well used here. Uh, you know, with Billy and Brenda, I mean, it was just really nicely done. Uh, yeah, I mean, I love their relationship, and his delivery is perfect for his cat. I mean, you you see the difference in both of them. Uh, did you have time to kind of work on that? Was that all in the screenplay, or was there was it kind of worked on before you shot? It was. I mean, we worked on it. We did do a few rehearsals, but not a lot, to be honest. I mean, part of it is when you write for people you know. And, and it's a rare thing. To, I mean, I've had things where I've written stuff and rewritten things and you're working with different actors, but this was literally like, I wrote it with Santino and Sarah in my head and it kind of just came out and I sent to them and they were like, this is amazing. Very few notes. We did do a table read then to like hear it out loud, made some changes from there. A lot of that to me is always like, oh, you don't need to say this. You don't need to say this. You just see it. And then we did a walkthrough kind of rehearsal just to like plot and stage it and, and kind of brushed up the script in there. There were of course cuts and trims and they're both so brilliant, like, you know, little things here and there, but it was, it didn't change that much. And it's, and it's wild because when I watch it now, it's, it's such a great feeling when you have something like, I was like, that was exactly what I heard in my head because you were writing for those two actors and I knew what they could do. And I knew Sarah has this quality that even if she did all those crazy, awful things she does in the film, you kind of love her. There's this childishness and this kind of like sweetness and sincerity and knowing, and then Santino too with the magician idea. And he was, it was actually his idea. He was like, I really want a wig, which changed him completely, but it oh, was... Yeah, and it was their voices I heard and that balance between the two of them, too, with, like, his kind of dryness. And then when – I don't want to give away the tw – there is a little twist when you find out kind of what he's really doing. But yes. uh, but between the two of them, just, like, the balance – which they had in Tootsie, too, and very different characters. But I just knew what they would be. And it was kind of what I heard in my head and, and mm -hmm. life, which was amazing. I'll have a series of specials on the Tribeca Festival the week of the festival, including the complete Dave Solomon interview. There is more Sci-Fi Talk time capsule, so stay tuned. There's a new novel, Rain Returned, and I spoke to the author recently. All right, today we have author Katie Carradin, and she has one book out and one that's coming out in October. And the book we're going to be talking about to start off Yep, Rain Returned is the first one. Uh, tell us a little bit about that one. Well, actually, before we get into it, there's two books, one out, one scheduled. Is this going to be a trilogy or more? That's a great question. So the plan right now and what I have confirmed with my publisher is a trilogy. So the first book, as you said, Rain Returned, that came out last September. It's currently available now wherever books are sold. The second book in the series, Blood Divided, is coming out October 3rd of this year. And then the plan is that the final book will come out in the fall of 2024 hmm. because nothing moves fast enough in publishing. <laughs> no, readers, it does not. <laughs> readers want them immediately. And as a reader myself, I get it. But now, having moved into the business of writing, there's so much behind the scenes that happens and that goes into creating one of these amazing books that you can hold in your hands. So mm -hmm. I, I have a little bit different of a perspective now. <laughs> so what's it like to start, I guess, building the world? And what is that like? I guess you have to maybe mentally map it out in your mind, or maybe sometimes you put things to paper to kind of get an idea where everything is. 
That's a great question. Yes. So for me, world building is my favorite part of writing. Every author has their favorite thing that they love doing. Some authors, they love dialogue. Some love, you know, coming up with the plot. For me, I always start with the world building. And I think that's because my own reading background is so steeped in authors who created these fantastic worlds. You know, I mean, of course, we have Tolkien and we have Ursula Le Guin. And I mean, just these these incredible ones, but also looking at like Garth Nix and some of the the newer authors, um, newer to some readers. And it's really fascinating to me because I see things so clearly in my mind that the challenge for me is taking the pictures that I see and transforming them into words so that then when readers go through, hopefully they see the pictures in their minds that I'm trying to paint because I cannot draw, I cannot paint, I cannot do any kind of anything more than a stick figure, but I love creating worlds and these different realms and scenes using the power of words to convey that imagery. I'm sorry. So it's interesting. You actually get a visual picture in your mind about it. Now, do these pictures come at the opportune time sometimes? <laughs> Never. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I would say, you know, you can do everything you can to tempt your creative muse to interact with you. You show up, you sit down, you're ready, but you never know if they're going to appear or not. And a lot of times for me, I've finally learned that you can't force this. And usually the best ideas are going to come to me right as I'm about to fall asleep because I'm not thinking about anything else. I'm relaxing or it's going to randomly be at 2 a.m. in the morning. And I've learned I just have to get up, go jot down the idea, <laughs> go to bed. Thank goodness my husband understands this and is supportive of what I do because it's it's not easy being married to a writer. I can definitely tell you that. <laughs> Time Capsule episode 393 continues in a moment. It's Pride Month, and at the recent roundtables for Star Trek Strange New Worlds, here are Celia Gooding, who is Ensign Notoya Uhura, and also Melissa Navaya, who is Lieutenant Erica Ortegas, and they both comment on how they've been accepted by the LGBTQIA plus community. I hope I got that right. And I don't certainly want to offend anybody. And so that's what they talk about. And we'll hear it right now. Throughout my career, uh, you know, the trans LGBT community, like they have been just such um, rock stars for me in terms of uh, people who like love what they see in me. They love what I bring to to, to the screen that I bring to characters. Um, the fact that like gender play is almost like inherently a part of me and always has been. And so whenever I'm cast in things, I think people somehow they see that. Um, and so uh, they have been, you know, absolutely my biggest fans. And that continues through through this this uh, this Star Trek fame that I now have. Um, and yeah, and I remember that that interview and I, I, I still stand by it. Absolutely. And I know people want to see more of Ortegas in terms of her relationships. And and what I what I would say to that is, you know, just hang on, um, hang on for sure. But I love that so many people see themselves in Ortegas. And even if you are not exactly what Ortegas is, the beautiful thing about it is that you can see yourself in Ortegas in some respect. And, and that I think is, is the most beautiful characters, right? Where people from all walks of life who have experienced all sorts of different stories 
can see pieces of themselves or all of themselves in you. Um, and I think uh, that goes again to the writing of Ortegas, but but it definitely uh, is something that is that is so important to me. Um, and seeing everyone's uh, reaction to her and wanting to see more of her and loving things about her that that are definitely like inherently Ortegas, but also Melissa, do you know, um, uh, like my haircut, you know, like people are like, oh, that's fantastic. And I'm like, that was, the, you know, that was a creation that, you know, that the producers were like, yeah, this is awesome that I, this is like, you know, her haircut is the haircut of my dreams. Um, and it, it says, it speaks so much about to her character. Um, but yeah, and I love that we're like premiering during Pride Month. And also I feel like our poster, right? Isn't that very like, much, very right? much. This and I'm like, I don't know if that was on purpose, but I'm going to go ahead and say it was on purpose. So, so yeah, so I can't wait to see what, what fans and especially the trans LGBT community continue to see in Ortegas and hearing from them also inspires a lot of what we then bring to the, to the role. So thank you to them. And uh, yeah, Pride Month, let's, let's do it. I just want to say I have to Please. add because I love my community Please. so much as a out queer person, as someone whose relationship with their gender is ever evolving and ever changing. It is so exciting to be a part of this, especially playing a role uh, uh, that has been originated by cis women and has historically only been played by cis women. For me, as someone who doesn't necessarily identify that way it is really exciting to be a part of and it really is humbling to be trusted with something that is so precious that is uhura's story um and to the trans and non-binary queer community uh know that there is an entire cast of people who want to do right by y'all and want to represent y'all in a way that that is human and true and and beautiful and lovely and to have your support means the moon and beyond to all of us but especially to me because i am someone who has learned the most about myself from queer people and i as someone who is myself every day and has to show up as myself to play this character even though this character is very different from me and how she identifies and who whoever she decides to be and become um it 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 just means a lot to me to to, to be a part of this and and to be just a small piece of of an incredibly delicious franchise pie and and have my little queer stamp on it and say a queer person was here and 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 reply and reprised a role and and made sure that everyone knew that this person is here and is proud to be a part of this community and has a role to play in trek and not only any role a role like uhura uh uh, uh that i just had to say that great stuff two very talented ladies that full interview, among many Star Trek interviews, will be available on Trek Tuesday, so listen for that. Putting in a new feature, kind of digging into the archives of some of the older episodes of Time Capsule that are no longer out, but still have some good material in it. And we're going to go back and continue with the Star Trek theme, and this Time Capsule episode from way back with René Aubergenois, and also who is Shapeshifter Odo, and also Aaron Eisenberg, who is Nog, from Star Trek Deep Space Nine. René Aubergenois was shapeshifter Odo on the most diverse Star Trek series yet, Star Trek Deep Space Nine. In the heyday of DS9, he talked about playing the shapeshifting constable. It's like playing any other character, except that at a certain point, you 
melt and you become jello and you run all over the place and then you become something else and when it, when I become something else it's obviously not really me it's done with like special effects and uh, so that like one one show I had to turn into a rat and so I I didn't have to come into work the day the rat worked. And uh, but when I came in the next day, everybody said, "Oh, you were great yesterday. You did really well." But actually all they were doing were filming the rat running around. So um it's really not that different from playing any any character. You just uh he's a uh, he becomes very uh real to me and so I don't even think about it. I do a different voice for Odo, but I don't do that voice like right now I'm not talking in that voice. I don't know if you know, you know Odo. Odo has a sort of a gruff voice like that, but I, I find it difficult to do his voice when I'm not in my makeup. He talked about how he was used on the series. I, f I think every season they've given me great stories. There have been some seasons where I've had less to do, not not that many stories to do, perhaps, but every story they've ever given me where, where Odo has been featured, I can't think of one that I've thought was not interesting and challenging. Um, and uh, so I have no, no complaints. And... You know, Armin, my dearest friend on the show who plays Quark, he, he's he's a workaholic, and all he wants to do is be heavy in the shows. And I'll say to him, are you heavy this week? And he'll go, no, and you know, he'll look unhappy. And he said, what about you? And I say, I have one line. And I'm saying, <laughs> there are some times when, I mean, I, I do so many other things and uh, run around the country doing other things. And so I, I enjoy having the breaks. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Odo's, I think there have been some wonderful stories. This was a classically trained actor. I, I studied, uh, I went to university at uh, Carnegie Mellon University. Um, before that, I, um, I, by the time I was 16, well, by the time I was 10, I, by the time I was 6, I knew I wanted to be an actor. By the time I was 10, I was acting in local community theater. By the time I was 16, I was an apprentice at Stratford, Connecticut Shakespeare Festival under the mentorship of John Hausman. And uh, then I went to Carnegie Mellon and uh, after that went into regional repertory theater for... Uh, about seven or eight years, and during which time I played massive numbers of classical roles, uh, and um, and then moved into freelancing. On acting itself, acting is a a mystery to me. I don't know how people do it, and I don't know how I do it. Uh, it's it is trying to stay connected to that part all of us had as children where we were able to suspend our disbelief and turn a, 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 a roll from a paper towel into a telescope and a, and a picket from a fence into a pirate's sword. He has these really nice comments on science fiction. One of the things that science fiction fantasy can do is by placing by by placing the story into a into an other world into another time we are able to get a kind of a perspective and an objectivity on things that we might not be able to deal with or want to deal with or think are entertaining but in, in couched in the world of sci-fi fantasy we can address very human problems I think that's one of its great uh, one, one of the great things that it has to offer
We also lost Aaron Eisenberg, who was Nog. On a rainy day where I literally had to drive over two hours to interview him at a comic book store, we talked. Obviously going for the show, and I, I went to audition, and I had no idea. Uh, I went to the audition, I'm like, oh, some character Nog, and I'm like, okay, well, well what is it? And they're all, it's a Ferengi, and I'm like, oh, okay, great, well, what's a Ferengi? And uh, Ron Surma, he was the casting director, and he proceeded to tell me and gave me a script, and we kind of went over it, and he said, look, here's a couple tapes, and he gave me a couple tapes, I think. One was The Last Outpost, and I was looking, watching those a little bit more. Oh, I see, okay. So I went in for the audition, and it was really kind of um, difficult. I, I walk in, and there's like seven there's like seven people, you know, out in front of, behind the desk. I'm like, oh, my God, in one chair. So I walk in, and I have to act like this kind of crazy little character, you know, which I really don't have any visual idea except other than what I saw. But when you're out of makeup, it's a lot harder to play the character than when you're in makeup. So I'm out there playing the character going. And the scene I actually auditioned was um, when I first meet Jake. And that was the I scene audition. And I, I, I nailed it the first time, and I left, and they called me back. And, and I didn't do as good the second time, but they cast me because I did so good the first time. And, I, and being older, over 18, and they could use me a lot longer and all that stuff. And, and I looked like a kid. You know, it just worked out. I was very fortunate. And that is Time Capsule Episode 393. This is Tony Tolado. Back next month with more Happy Pride.